We're back. Uh, here's a news item, quote from the UC Davis News Service. San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom, who leapt onto the national stage when he directed the city's county clerk to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples in 2004, will be among the guest speakers at the spring commencement ceremonies at the University of California, Davis. Yes, Gavin Newsom will come to our law school uh, ceremony here at 10 o'clock Saturday. We hope someone will, will go to that ceremony and, and ask Gavin a few questions. Because as I recall, in 2004, when John Kerry was running a tough race against George Bush and needed all the help he could get, Gavin decided to issue these marriage licenses for gay couples to provide photo ops of gays and lesbians kissing on the steps of City Hall. While this did make Gavin a hero to America's LGTB community, we should keep in mind that represents 3% of our nation's population. And meanwhile, in all the rest of those red states, this did not help John Kerry at all. So I hope someone will ask uh, San Francisco's boneheaded mayor if, uh, if he's still proud of what he did, because I'm sure he'll give an impassioned speech as to why he did the right thing. I would have to ask the LGTB community whether they think they're better off under the Bush-Cheney administration than they would have been under one of John Kerry. And please, if anybody goes to the ceremony, please ask Mayor Newsom what else he's got in mind to help the Democrats out in 08. Why not get a big bus and tour the Old South with a big banner on the side that reads, We've come to take away your guns. That ought to play uh, pretty well down there in those red states. And while I, I certainly uh, support a woman's right to choose, this might not be the year maybe to get you know a tour of the South advocating abortion on demand. Or how about a real concerted push to allow people who are being sworn into court ceremonies to use any holy book of their choice, not necessarily the Bible. Now, personally, that actually does make sense to me, but this might not be the time to push for such a measure. Now, I know Gavin is, he's good-looking, he's well-connected to the Getty uh, crowd in San Francisco, and, and he'd like to be governor one day, or, or more. But I would like to just, you know, I would like to suggest that if anyone goes to this commencement, that they ask the mayor to please... For the sake of the nation, shut up between now and Election Day. Just shut up. If you've got any other bright ideas as to how to help on Election Day, just keep them to yourself. Anyway, enough said. I want to direct your attention also to uh, Midtown Magazine, which is finding quite a place for itself in the greater Sacramento area. In particular, an article by Scott Soriano whose writings appear in the magazine, as they have in the past in Because People Matter, and, and I believe also the Sacramento News and Review. Scott is also a uh, DJ at KDVS. But this is a worthy article titled, A Sacramentan Comments, subtitled, World Class City. I don't want to do some liberal quotes from this. Now that the Sacramento Kings have given this fair town another miserable season, I'd like you to stop what you're doing and look around. Notice that Sacramento is exactly the same as it was last year. We are no more or no less a city than before basketball season started. We are what we've always been, Sacramento. I mention this because the Kings and Arena Boosters couldn't let go of the claim that without a new sports arena, Sacramento had little chance of becoming a, quote, world-class city, unquote. 
<laughs> reading down. Reality check here. Here is a list of real world-class cities. Paris, New York, London, Istanbul, Rio de Janeiro, Rome, Tokyo, Moscow, Berlin. That list is conservative. Loosen the criteria so we can include Stockholm, Oslo, Amsterdam, Mexico City, Montreal, Sydney, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Beijing, Bangkok, Dubai, Cairo, Johannesburg. I, I could rattle off 50 more before Sacramento even warrants a wisp of a mention. Note that none of the above are considered, quote, world-class, unquote, because they have a new publicly funded sports stadium where their suburban families can get fat eating cheesy dogs while watching Disney on ice. Why is it important to recognize Sacramento as what it really is? Well, first, we have a mayoral race in which one of the candidates, Kevin Johnson, has started the world-class city talk. While Johnson has not prescribed a new arena as our answer to Dwarf Paris, he's put himself in the role of the traditional pro-arena candidate. He's a former professional basketball player. He is using the world-class city code word, and most important, his backers are pro-arena honks who firmly believe the world-class city nonsense. Recently, the Sacramento News and Review had a cute little compare and contrast between Johnson and Heather Fargo, which placed Fargo in the anti-arena camp. I can only assume that the Quip's author and the editor moved to Sacramento within the last six months. It wasn't too long ago that Fargo was leading the charge for a partially publicly funded sports arena to be built at the old rail yards. The fact is, Fargo does support a publicly financed arena, providing that financing is not total and that the arena is at the, in a place of her liking. We should get Scott Soriano on this program to, to read this himself, but anyway, he closed with, Sacramento does not need a new arena to be a, quote, world-class city, unquote. Hell, it doesn't even need an arena for any reason. The one thing Sacramento does need is a flood control system. Yes, we have one, but it's in woeful condition. Depending on which expert you consult, Sacramento is either the most or second most flood-prone city in the United States. How will an arena and all that money... Oh, oh, I know. The Superdome. That's it. We weren't looking for an arena, but a refuge center when the flood hits. Now I understand. Oh, and in case you're missing the reference there, it was the Superdome in New Orleans that uh, had all those refugees from Hurricane Katrina. And if you go check out the Natomas area, Mayor Fargo's uh, home district in Sacramento, you will notice that they built buildings to accommodate people up on the second floor, like in gymnasiums and such. So that in case there is a massive flood out there, that's where they can send the rescue boats and helicopters. And, and no, I wish I was making that up. And we've talked, uh, we haven't mentioned the vice president issue, uh, Mental Floss magazine, which doesn't do his research as well as it, it might. In fact, the article that they wrote on the vice presidents had a couple of errors I caught. But uh, otherwise, some funny moments. I wanted to quote from the description of James Cabell Breckenridge. Breckenridge was the vice president of the 15th president, uh, James Buchanan, elected in 1856. According to the article, Breckenridge was a Kentucky gentleman in the grandest sense. He had an impressive career as a lawyer and a representative in the Kentucky House. Most notably, at age 36, he became the youngest vice president in U.S. history. But uh, things took a turn for Breckenridge when he was charged with treason. 
In September of 1861, only a few months after his vice presidential term had ended, Union and Confederate forces invaded his home state of Kentucky. Breckinridge cast his lot with the Confederates. The federal government promptly indicted him. Breckinridge headed south and became Jefferson Davis's Secretary of War. When the Confederacy surrendered in 1868, he was forced to go on the lam. He hid out for two months in Georgia and Florida before escaping to Cuba. Breckinridge and his wife and their children spent the next four years in exile wandering through Canada, England, Europe, and the Middle East until President Andrew Johnson issued a general amnesty proclamation on Christmas in 1868. The following March, Breckinridge returned to the country with his family. We would refer you to the article for more about Breckinridge, Spiro T. Agnew, Aaron Burr, Richard M. Johnson, and Rufus Devane King, all of whom served as vice presidents of the United States. We're going to watch the vice presidential follies this year with some special note of the 42 men who have been presidents of the United States. Eight of them took the office having been first vice president. On seven occasions from the death of the president, and I guess eight occasions, and in resignation in the case of Richard Nixon. Wait, did I say eight? That, that's nine total. So more than one time out of four, the vice president has assumed the duties of the president. We think that uh, makes the rather arbitrary process of selection of the vice president one to be looked at uh, very carefully. N not that the American public has or has ever had any influence over that. It seems to be just something that's accepted that the, the political party bosses and the and nominee will just pluck the vice president out of the population like, uh, like I don't know, the, the winner of American Idol. Actually, that's a bad metaphor. I guess even in American Idol, there's some vote that goes on. Of course, I'm sure there is a vote that goes on for the vice president. It's in the back room, and the numbers are probably something like 8 to 7. I was talking recently about the fact that in 1980, after Reagan sewed up the nomination, his political fixers like James Baker came and said, it's got to be Bush. Team Reagan, which thought not highly at all of George Herbert Walker Bush, said, does it, does it have to be? That was Reagan's question. Let me see if we can do a Reagan impression on this. You're telling me it has to be George? That's right, Governor. It has to be George Bush. Well, okay. Well, that's one I wish they would have run past the White House astrologer. We also liked an article uh, penned by um, former Radio Parallax guest Michael Shermer in his column for Scientific American. It's, uh, it's the skeptics column, and he noted some skepticism about the fact that these uh, functional magnetic resonant images of the brain are actually revealing where emotions are located or where thoughts are located. Just because an area shows activity and lights up doesn't necessarily correlate it to, say... A given emotion. Article in New Scientist magazine, which interesting, someone decided to find out what goes on in your brain when you're drunk. Evidently, Jody Gilman and colleagues at the U.S. National Institutes of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in Bethesda, Maryland, used MRI to observe the brain activity of 12 healthy social drinkers, both when sober and after they'd been given alcohol intravenously. This is after their blood levels reached the legal drunken level of 0.8 grams per 100 milliliters of blood. And yes, it used to be, used to be one. 1. 1.0 would get you in the slammer. Now it's been, zero, been reduced to 0. 0.8. Anyway, the researchers found that booze completely changed the way the brain reacted to images. 
While sober, the amygdala, which is involved in processing emotional reactions, lit up in response to frightened faces. But with alcohol on board, it was less active, reacting equally to neutral and fearful faces. Noted in the magazine, this may help explain why drunkenness makes people both more outgoing and more aggressive. It impairs the amygdala's ability to detect threats. Of course, Michael Shermer pointed out that, again, if, you're, if you see the amygdala light up in response to a stimulus, it's hard to say, oh, that's, that's the brain reacting with fear. Uh, fear may be a, a description of what the person's experiencing, but it may include other things. Anyway, back to the MRI studies. Uh, they confirmed that alcohol activates reward circuits, such as the nucleus accumbens, just as other drugs of abuse do, which results in pleasurable feelings. Also from the, uh, the science-slash-medical file, we have this, uh, this article, recent article from Associated Press, Health Woes Linked to Improper Sleep. Duh! Anyway, they did a study showing that people who sleep fewer than eight hours a night or more than nine are more likely to be obese. The study also linked light, smoke, light sleepers to higher smoking rates, less physical activity, and more alcohol use. Showing once again that our national epidemic of not getting enough sleep is just, just a bad thing. We wanted to talk on this program a little bit about uh, the birth of Israel, which celebrated its 60th anniversary, depending on which day you want to pick uh, this month. Some celebrate this on the fifth day of the Hebrew calendar month in question, while others would just say, well, it was, it was on May 14th, making it uh, 60 years ago yesterday, that Israel was founded. We're pretty much out of time on today's show, but I would, uh, I would refer you to the bizarre but true article in Mental Floss about how the Nazis helped the Zionists build a Jewish homeland. This article comes as a complete shock to me, but apparently in the late, uh, in the late 30s, uh, some of the Nazis in Europe thought that uh, they should collaborate with the Zionists to get people to move out of Europe, and this was uh, part of their solution to the, quote, Jewish question, unquote. Believe it or not, Zionists from Palestine came to Germany to teach Hebrew and display the blue and white Zionist flag. The article noted that by 1937, only about 24,000 German Jews had left for Palestine, prompting the Nazis to double their efforts. Tagged to help coordinate the Nazi Zionist project was none other than then 30-year-old Adolf Eichmann. According to the article, by 1939, another 36,000 Jews had moved to Palestine from Germany. Boy, that, that is really one from the strange but true files. And dang, we are out of time. I wanted to talk about uh, the article about the Cuban Missile Crisis in Vanity Fair, but that'll have to be deferred. I guess I can close with the fact that uh, not so long ago, White House spokesman Dana Perino had to admit that he, he didn't know anything about the Cuban Missile Crisis. He did speculate re with reporters, however, that he assumed that it was about Cuba and involved missiles. And never let it be said that this administration does not hire top talent to come work for it. That's it for today's program. Our thanks to Dr. Bruce Betts of the Planetary Society. We hope that many of you listeners will uh, travel down to Pasadena for that event. I'm certainly going to do so. Next week's show, Simon LeVay talking about when science goes wrong. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our intern is Letty Chavez. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.